Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Up next, Out Loud with John O'Caldwell, part of the Gingrich 360 Network. We all know that the black community votes overwhelmingly for Democrats, so much so that the Democratic Party takes the black vote for granted. Is it time for black folks to take charge of their voting habits? Today, one of the left's leading intellectuals and I debate the black community's relationship with the Democratic Party. This is Out Loud with Gianno Caldwell. Thank you, Dr. Mark Lamont Hill, for joining me today on Out Loud with Gianna Caldwell. A lot of folks know you as a very uh, influential brother on the left. You're intellectual, clearly. You have your own show. And people may not realize that you, before you were on CNN and all those different places, you were on Fox News Channel doing mm. weekly battle, battle with Bill O'Reilly. And uh, you did it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Bill really respected you. I remember this one particular clip where he was given an example uh, about a Coke dealer and he said, hey, you look like one. And you said, well, you look like somebody who does Coke. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the good old days where you could make jokes and people weren't as PC as they are now. So definitely a different uh, place to be. So thank you for joining me again. Oh, it's my pleasure, brother. It really is, man. I always love a uh, good civil dialogue. Absolutely. <laughs> I've seen some uh, recent chatter on social media, so I, that's what we're here for today. <laughs> a, good, <laughs> a good civil dialogue. So you, you're clearly a prominent voice on the left. you got a big platform. And I wanted to figure out from you, what do you think thus far of Joe Biden's presidency? It's a good question. I... First, I'd say that the Biden presidency is exactly what I expected it to be. It is a a presidency that won't meet the needs of the real left, but it will irritate the right significantly because he's not the centrist that he campaigned on either. And so what you end up with is a presidency that is slightly left of center that prom which is sort of what it promised to be 
but I would argue not nearly as progressive as he he promised, right? Which was to be the most progressive president since LBJ or since FDR, right? He ain't that. But he's also not the right winger that some people on the left were was were afraid he would be. But he's also not the the socialist uh, leader that many people on the right are now pretending that he is because of some of the uh, spending that he's doing and because of some of the plans that he's he's trying to enact. Well, I, I think a lot of folks uh, in the middle, you know, most voters are in the middle. They're more so independent than anything else. They were told and sold on the fact that Joe Biden was going to be a moderate. And I know you said that it, clearly he's not. I, uh, a lot of folks have said pre election that uh, progressives have said that they were going to drag him to the left. And we clearly see that happening. But what we're not really seeing is any policy specific and direct for African-Americans, which is the reason why he's in office today, because of the black vote. Black folks seemingly, especially when it comes to Democratic politicians, seem to always get left out in the cold. They vote for him. They rally for him. But they never really get any tangibles for their support. Why is that? You know, I... It's an interesting question. And I'm somebody who sits on the left and I've been critical of the Democratic Party for many years for this. I wouldn't say we don't get anything for Democratic votes, but we certainly don't get the kind of race targeted policy that other groups get. We are what political scientists refer to as a captured electorate. We uh, we ain't going nowhere. The assumption is black people are going to vote Democrat no matter what happens. And so very little is done to get us to vote Democrat. What's done is to get us motivated to vote at all. So in other words, if 100 black people come out and vote, 92 or somewhere between 88 and 94 of them are going to vote Democrat. But if we don't speak to their needs, you're only going to get 100. If you speak to their needs or you, or you promise them stuff, maybe 300 will come out. You'll still get the same percentage, but you'll have a lower turnout. So a big part of what Democrat strategy has been is make, is, is doing stuff to get voter turnout, but not trying to convince people to vote for them. And that's something that you don't see with Latino communities for, for lots of complex reasons, the biggest of which is just internal political and ideological diversity among the various types of Latinx voters. White folks certainly aren't trailed with an assumption that they're just going to vote for whoever. And so... I think it's it's a big part of the fact it's largely due rather to the fact that black folk don't have a lot of political options in a two party system where they don't trust the Republican Party and where they don't feel like Republican policy speaks to their needs. And so they end up saying, well, look, I don't trust these Democrats. I don't like these Democrats. I like some of them. But at the very at the end of the day, I know that they'll do better for me than Republicans. And that becomes uh, the kind of end game. And so you don't see the kind of attempt to, to shift policy or shape policy around African-American needs and interests. Well, you know what was interesting is I did see some some various outreach from the Democrats, especially calling Republicans Repub- uh, racist more so than they, they typically do, which we know that exists in every election. But because Donald Trump was doing a lot of outreach to African-Americans, especially African-American men, you saw what he got in 2016, which was 8 percent generally the black vote, 12 percent black men. And this year for African-American men who had a high school diploma or below that, they voted for him to the tune, I believe, 26 percent. So we do see when there is some policy tangibles, we talk about the first step back and a number of these things that I know folks on the left uh, typically dismiss as real and tangible efforts, we do see black folks say, "Okay, uh, I'm willing to give this a shot, give it a chance, 
But we, without any real tangibles, because I'm, I'm from the south side of Chicago. I've heard the song and dance pretty much all my life. You know, uh, white Democrats are racist, so we couldn't get anything done for you. But we're going to come back the next election cycle. We're going to have a fish fry, uh, a chicken cookout, and we're going to tell you what we're going to do for you. And nothing gets done. Wouldn't you uh, would you advocate for black folks just becoming independent versus being in that 94 percentile, which we saw under Barack Obama in 2008? Ninety four percent of black folks voted for Barack Obama. You know, it's an interesting question you ask. First, let me get to the first part. I'm not convinced. I don't I don't concede that black men, particularly educated black men, voted for Donald Trump because of policy tangibles. I'm, I'm not convinced that that's the case. I haven't. Uh, when I look at. So when, I, when I've interviewed folk and talked to folk, that's not what I get. Now, I don't assume that my experience is I don't confuse my experience for data. So I'm not going to say that, you know, anecdotally what I'm experiencing is necessarily the whole story. But if I look at. Trump's proposed plans, and I juxtapose that to, say, Ronald Reagan's plans or, say, uh, Mitt Romney's plans. Um, It's not that Trump offered vastly broader or even more targeted policies, um, and yet black men voted for Trump much more. I think that there were several things at play here. When we look at Trump versus Hillary Clinton, I think there's a a very complex conversation we have to have about gender, about whether black men are willing to vote for a white woman and whether they're willing to vote for a Clinton in particular, uh, of whether they're male or female at this stage in history, given everything that happened with the Clintons in the 90s. Um, The second piece of it, though, in the second election of Trump, the second election that he lost, is an interesting connection that many black male voters had to to Donald Trump. And there's something about Donald Trump's personality, there's something about the way that he navigates the world that does sort of resonate with certain voters. And I'm not sure that it's because of, you know, Trump's vision of school choice or because of Trump's understanding of the free market. I don't think it's necessarily because, you know, any particular policy as much as, as it is who Trump represents, which I think is deeply problematic. But the second part of your your question, I think, we is where we probably find some common ground. I don't believe that black voters should be have allegiance to the Democratic Party. Now, I happen to be a Green Party member, and I've been a, a Green Party member almost all of my voting life. I voted for Joe Biden in this last election. It was the first time since I've been voting for presidents that I can remember that I voted for a Democrat in, in an election. And it was for me, it was because of the particular stakes of this election. But I say that to say... I'm still able to weigh in on policy. I'm still able to be part of the conversation. I'm still able to drag Joe Biden in the direction that I want him to be dragged. But the Democratic Party doesn't take for granted that I'm going to vote for them. And I think that if black people had that kind of flexibility, it would be fine. But if all black folk are registered independent, but they still vote Democrat every single time, then you end up in the same boat. Democrats don't care whether you registered or not. I mean, it might matter for the primary, but in general, Democrats just want to know, are you going to vote for us? So if a whole bunch of independent black folks still voted for Democrat in every election, I'm not sure that changed anything. So black folk don't have to just change their affiliation. We have to actually change how we vote, not just in the national election, but particularly in these local and statewide elections. Okay. So do you think 
folks are going to to answer that call. And, and, and before you answer that question, because you were saying, hey, you don't know the reason why so many voted for Trump, if it's his, his personality, what, what the case may be. And, and many could argue that the personality was a part of it. Certainly people were attracted to his, his personality, his bravado, all of that, that, that alpha male type energy. So, yeah, I, I can understand that piece. But we also if we're looking at the data, just in terms of how well black folks did over four years, by the time he was leaving, it was he was up for election rather during that time of the election cycle. Unemployment in the black community was at its lowest on record. Five percent Hispanics, three percent. These are tangibles. You talk about the deregulation of the economy and how it benefited everyone. It wasn't just the wealthiest. Again, they, they would gain more because they pay the most in taxes. But certainly there was some tangible benefits, unlike what we're seeing with Joe Biden, who's uh, regulating the economy and he's coming out with a lot of kind of uh, uh, welfare initiatives, if you will, to say this is what I'm going to do for the black community when the black community actually need jobs, not welfare programs. Here's what I'm not following up, because you're saying that that the, the the demographic of black male voters who voted the most for Trump were between earners of would you say seventy five and ninety thousand? I said that the the original number that I stated twenty six percent were those who had high school diplomas or below. Overall, in terms of black folks that supported him, black men, I believe it was almost twenty percent. My understanding is, that, and I, I don't have the data in front of me. That's why I'm, I'm, I don't I don't want to speak with certainty. But my understanding of the data was that the highest slice of black men who voted for Trump were actually those who had higher educational attainment and higher income. Yeah, I don't I don't have the data to support that that particular conclusion. Yeah, but 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 so but because it's interesting to think about if the most vulnerable people are voting for Trump or if it's people who honestly are fairly recession proof. For example, you know, when you look at black men who make over $75,000 a year who have graduate degrees or college degrees, they're 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 not recession proof per se, but they certainly are less vulnerable to the whims of the economy than say someone with a high school diploma and someone who's making minimum wage. And so I'm, I'm, I'm always fascinated to know which slices of our population uh, of, our, of our community are, are finding uh, resonance with Trump's message. But but again, black voting patterns with regard to Republicans aren't don't necessarily hinge on the economy. So you, you could look at moments under George W. Bush when the economy was fairly strong. Right. Particularly the first two years of his presidency. And when you when he goes up for reelection in in, in uh, 2004 and John Kerry's on the table, it could have made complete sense to vote for George Bush based on the economy at that t- at that time. But they didn't because there was something about George W. Bush that didn't resonate with them. And of course, we have 9-11. We have the Iraq war. We have weapons of mass destruction. There are other conversations going on. Similarly, you could look at the economy under the kind of small government, except for the military, uh, Ronald Reagan years, and you see a very interesting voting pattern. Black men are not, they're voting for Reagan more than they did George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, uh, and, and, uh, and John McCain, etc. But they're still not voting at, at, at as high a number as they are for Trump, despite the fact that based on just the economic metrics, you could make a case for it. And so I, I think it's really complicated. I, I, I think that black people are, are committed to, to the Democratic Party as as a cultural move, as a confidence move, and to a large extent as as, as a for policy reasons, but I do think that as Donald Trump might be an anomaly, and and I and I wonder, and we'll know, and and we'll certainly know in three years, right? When 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 these when the, when we put campaigning again, and and Republicans are attempting to to wrest control of the White House again, 
if Donald Trump runs again, we'll know. We'll have an answer. But assuming Donald Trump doesn't run, it will be interesting to see if anyone else in the GOP can get the kind of support that, that Donald Trump got. I think it's an anomaly. I think it's a, I, I don't see it happening again. Well, there's one indicator that I think that you, you, you didn't reference there. And that's the fact that Donald Trump has been the only president, to my knowledge, or really in my lifetime, that has went after the black vote in such a way that it was almost his every conversation. When he was running in 2016, he would be before all white audiences and he would say, the Democratic Party have taken black people for granted. Republicans were afraid to use that kind of language and they certainly were afraid to be uh, looking to recruit African-Americans to support them in, in the same way that Donald Trump did. You don't even see Democrats per se go after the black vote in the way that Donald Trump did. So if for example, he doesn't run for a, a, a second go at it, uh, really a third go at it. He right. and the next person, say if it's Ron DeSantis or someone else, they may not go after the black vote in the way that Donald Trump did. So then that would make him an anomaly. That's fair. So that, that's, I mean, that's a fair point. I think you're right. Um, I think it would be so unwise, though, Gianno, like if after watching Donald Trump Despite all the drama, all the messiness of his of, of his presidency, um, secure that much of the black vote. It would be fool, foolish for the Republican Party, whoever the next standard bearer is, to not follow Donald Trump's blueprint on, on, get, on at least targeting the black vote. And Donald Trump didn't just do it during the election. I mean, we're in the kind of moment of the what they call the, the doctrine of the permanent campaign, which is kind of post George W. Bush, where you're always campaigning. But but Donald Trump was very particular to say, look, from day one until day whatever, I'm going to constantly be speaking to the black community, you know, whether it was bringing HBCU presidents into the White House, whether it was, you know, meeting at Trump Tower with everybody from Jim Brown to Steve Harvey to I mean, this stuff matters. Now, I disagree with it as a tactic and as a strategy, as a philosophy and as a policy move. Donald Trump and I just don't see the world the same way. So I don't agree with him. But if I were in charge of the GOP or if I were managing the next presidential campaign for the Republicans, I would absolutely say, look, Donald Trump, just because Donald Trump did it don't mean it's wrong. <laughs> you know, Donald Trump did a lot of stuff right tactically. And one of those things was targeting the black community in the way that he did. And so for me, you know, I, I think you're right that if the next person does what the GOP usually does, it wouldn't be an apples to apples comparison. I just have enough faith in politicians ability to do what's best for them to think that now that they see that it works. That they'll do it. I mean, if you remember, uh, I guess it's been over 10 years now. God, time moves so quickly. But after just getting smashed in, in, in an election, Bobby Jindal did the autopsy of the GOP. And he's, he's you know, and, and, and he said, look at where we are. Look at what we're doing. Look at what we're not doing. And here's, you know, and, we, and they laid out the problems. Um, one of them, of course, was the tent was getting smaller. The, the, the Republicans too often said, we're going to double down on what's already worked. Trump found a way to do both. He found a way, and you and I may not agree on this, but he found a way to appeal to the most racist sector in America at the same time that he said, I want some black people on board. I mean, it, it, it was it's actually quite stunning how how he was able to kind of speak to a population that are so disparate and be so successful at getting one side and getting enough of the black vote to make him competitive in every state. That's that takes more than a notion. You know, I disagree with you on that point, but we'll debate more after this quick break. Hey, everyone. 
everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values, premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Let's be clear. There were some people that were racist that they did like what he said. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. There (laughs) were some people. There were some people. So that's but that's going to be the case with Joe Biden's base, too. There will be some racists that say, I like some of the things that Joe Biden says. That happens on both sides. But if you would. Yeah, but if we're being honest. I think it would be safe to say that if you were to take. The one million most racist people in America. Um, and and line them up and ask them who they voted for. Would you, would you agree that they would that Trump would 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 win by a landslide? I don't have the. If they were the people, I don't have any data to support that conclusion. But if we were to say a candidate who's using some language that may not be racially sensitive at times, well, both of them would be be in that category, or a candidate who's literally legislated policy to put as many black men in jail as possible who's used the N-word on the floor of, 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 of Congress multiple times, whether it be he was repeating what someone said or not, I think most racists would say, hey, give me that person. You don't name Trump or Biden. They would say, give me that person, and that person would be Joe Biden. 
Yeah, I, I think out of context that could be true, but I, I guess I'm making a different argument. My argument here isn't about whether or not Trump is racist or whether Trump is even intended. Well, yeah, no, to and, say that, and, and that's not that's not what I'm arguing yeah. either. My point is, no, no, I know. Yeah, I, I'm just saying, I'm just saying that if you look, if if you go to rallies, t- take take MAGA off the table for a minute. If you if you if if you just if you look at the people who are marching in Charlottesville, right? For as an example, to I think it would be dishonest to to suggest that those people who are marching to tear down, who are protesting the tearing down of Confederate statues, those people who are anti-Semitic, anti-Black, etc., are also voting, also voted for Hillary Clinton in the previous election. I, I think that would be an unreasonable um, interpretation. Now, whether Trump, I'm, I'm not. So when I say Trump is appealing to them. I'm not even making at this moment a judgment about whether or not he wants to or not. I'm not making a judgment about whether it's his fault or not. I'm not making a he's more or less racist than his opponent claim at all. I'm simply saying that Trump's campaign and Trump's presidency seem to appeal to those people. Those who made a choice for president, they chose Trump. And lots of other people chose Trump, too. I'm I'm not saying that everybody who voted for Trump was racist. But I think if you're racist, it's much more likely you voted for Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton in 2016. And then in 2020, I would make the same argument for Biden. But I have no I, I make no I, I do not believe that Joe Biden is racist, but. I absolutely could dissect Joe Biden's career and point out numerous instances where he said some racist stuff or did some racist stuff or supported a racist policy. I absolutely I, I would agree with you a thousand percent. But just to be clear, you know, when we talk about the crime bill, for example, or three strikes or the Welfare Reform Act, Welfare Reform Act or the Prison Litigation Reform Act, all of these policies that emerged in the 90s, Democrats were in control, but Republicans supported them as well. That's not so true. for me. It, it, the, you, you don't think you don't think that Republicans supported the welfare welfare reform? Oh, no. Welfare reform in 96. Or, sure. Yeah. But I don't I don't understand where where that would be institutional racism or racism. Generally, the 94 crime bill, you said holistically, you mentioned a bunch of policies and you said Democrats supported oh, them, yeah, but Republicans down, supported yeah. them as well. Republicans as a whole did not support the 94 crime bill. There were some Republicans that voted for it, but the majority that voted for that was Democrats. If Word. we look at, I don't have the, I'm, I'm going to pull up the roll call now, but. No, that's, it's accurate. Most, you can take, you can take my word as fact. The majority that voted for the institutional race, because my colleagues, a lot of them don't believe in institutional racism. I get it. Uh, I do. I think it exists in the 94 crime bill. Most majority Democrats supported it. I'm, I'm not, I'm not disputing that, but I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I'm literally looking at the crime bill now. Everybody supported the crime bill. That's not true. It was 95. It was 95 yays and four nays and one who didn't vote. What, were you looking at the uh, you're looking at the Senate right now? Look at the House. And then I was wondering right? what, what exactly are you looking at? Because the majority of folks that voted for it and who was what was the makeup in the Senate at that time, too? That's another consideration. But the majority of the folks, especially when you look at the House of Representatives, were Democrats. Right. But we're talking about the, the Senate where Joe Biden was, right? Joe Biden wasn't in the House. He was in the Senate. So I'm, my, my point is, everybody voted for it. I'm not, I'm not making a claim that Republicans were, were, were more for it. Or, wait, just so I'm, maybe we're talking about two different things. You, 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 you agree that in the Senate, nearly everyone, it was nearly unanimous support for the crime bill. You agree with that, right? No, I don't agree with that. I got to look at that record. I don't agree okay, with I'm, that. I'm, I'm, so, Okay, I mean, I'm talking about the majority party stance. The majority party stance was Democrats supported it. It was their issue, their bill. 
Jesse Jackson, right. Jesse Jackson went and sat down in the Judiciary Committee and he said this was going to cause mass incarceration. And he was absolutely right. And he was the spokesperson for the black community at that time, one in which Democrats supported. So with that. Wait, but, but, but hold on. I'm, I'm confused because this is just a matter of fact. I'm looking. There were 95 yays, four nays and one abstention. So, again, in the Senate, I mean, we can't really disagree on this, right? I mean, this is a matter of fact, right? Almost everybody voted for it. Only four people out of 100 said, no, that's a fact. You're still saying that, that most people didn't vote for it? Look at the House. Look at the House totals. I'm only talking about the Senate because I'm talking about Joe Biden. Uh-huh. I'm saying that Joe Biden, I'm saying that Joe Biden supported it, right? I agree. Democrats supported it. Democrats advanced it. This was a project... In fact, this was one of the policies. But you said you said you said Republicans and Democrats, everybody voted for it. That would means if everyone voted for it, everyone in the House and everyone in the Senate would have to have supported it. That is inaccurate. It's factually inaccurate. That's not what I'm saying. That's what you said. I'm I'm saying. So clearly we're miscommunicating so so that we can be on the same page. I'm saying in the Senate Mm -hmm. where Joe Biden was. Where Joe, because you're saying Joe Biden advanced, was sort of an architect and advanced um, a policy that had detrimental impacts on the black community. I agree. Most it was a democratic project. I agree. I'm saying that Republicans also supported it. That this was not a. um, Oh, and I and and I conceded that point from the beginning. I said that there were some Republicans that did support it. That's what I said. And I said the majority, the majority that supported the bill were Democrats. That's what I said. We're on the same page. Right. I'm saying but the majority of Republicans who were in the Senate also voted for it. We, we agree with that, too. Right. I was listening to your point in terms of the majority. I don't know what the Senate totals are. So if you say that yeah, that's the case, but that's still but that's four. still we're talking about over 400 people in the House of Representatives. We're still there's still more Democrats sure. that supported it than uh, Republicans. So that's the point there. Sure. And move on. Yeah, I, I, I'm. I'm, I'm I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with that. Right. We, we my, were on the my, same my page from the beginning. I said the majority supported it. Some Republicans did support it. Sure. Yeah, but it wasn't just so, majority of Democrats. It, is what it, I, mean. I have. I have no dog in the Democratic. I'm fine saying the majority of Democrats supported. Mm-hmm. I, I have. That's. I, I'm saying yes. I'm, I'm, that's never been in dispute for me. My overall point in saying this is to say that I don't look at the crime bill. Or any of these other, and I didn't wasn't just talking about the crime bill. Like I said, the welfare reform act, prison litigation reform act. These are all bills that were that, that all. And I was speaking about all four of the bills at, at, at one time. That was the other thing. I wasn't speaking just of the house. I know, I know, and that's why I said bill. that's that's yeah. not true because you so, you lumped them all so, in there. There you go. Right, and what I'm saying is, if we look at if we look at these, this body of work that emerged in the '90s, it, there were not Republicans saying no, we should get softer on crime. There, there, there were not. In fact, most of the, if you remember, most of the um, opposition, Republican opposition to these bills were about the details of the bill, not against the premise of the bill, right? As you, as you know, in Congress, it's, it's the devil's in the details. People say we don't want pork, we don't want these add-ons, we don't, we don't want we, people. Democrats and Republicans tend to smuggle in other things on a, on a bill that has nothing to do with the thing right. they're talking about. Yeah. We saw it with the COVID relief package, but there were, there were not a string of Republicans saying, no, we, sh- we shouldn't, we shouldn't give, we shouldn't have welfare reform. No, we shouldn't be soft, tougher on prisoners. What was wrong with no, we welfare reform? For, 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 I'm, I'm not making a case about whether oh, welfare okay, reform was right or wrong. What, what I'm making the case. You're just saying generally the, when it comes to legislation and bills is the devil's is in the details and people put pork in it yes. and things. That, okay. Got it. All right. Understood. Absolutely. But, but also, but also the Clinton presidency, Clinton was very strategic in saying Clinton had a series of policies that he knew 
would be palatable to the mainstream. And he knew that would um, make him seem like a centrist. And, 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 and Bill Clinton was quite savvy in this. And he understood that the crime bill, he understood that, a, a str- that, that the string of bills that we just talked about would be things that would make him look reasonable and tough. And quite frankly, in many ways, it was the Clinton campaign and Clinton administration that threw black people under the bus because they said, well, if, if I, I can be a two term president by governing this way, by, by, by attempting to govern from the center. Um, of course, they say now they regret it. It's very easy to regret things 20 years later, 30 years later. It's very easy to regret things when there's nothing at stake. The, the question is, do you, did, you know, how'd you feel when you were uh, when you're in the midst of doing it? And was it just an air of judgment or was it what you, you was it that you did whatever you needed to do to succeed? And so when I look at that, I say Joe Biden's a little bit of both. Joe Biden's a, you don't get to be a career politician. You don't get to be in the Senate for all that time and and not have to make some calculations that are not ethically strong, right? You're, but you can convince yourself that you're looking big picture. And then there's a way that I think Joe Biden has grown. I think there's a way that Joe Biden has been challenged and pushed and made to look at the world differently. And I appreciate that in him. And I think there are a lot of politicians like that. I don't think it's just Joe Biden. And so when I think about racism and I think about what it means to live in a country where there's still lingering racism, and I think about who who those people choose, tend to vote for. They tend not to vote for people who speak about racial diversity. They tend not to vote for people who say black lives matter. They tend not to vote for people who want to reform police. You know, all things that Joe Biden has talked about, even though, again, I don't, Joe, Joe I, I happen to think Joe Biden is not strong enough on these issues. I, I don't, I'm deeply critical of Joe Biden on these issues. But it's hard for me to imagine that someone who supports police votes for Joe Biden, if that's their pride, if, that's, if, if, if they're voting on that issue. Obviously, people aren't single issue voters all the time. Um, it's hard for me to believe that somebody who cares about the envi- environment, uh, I'm sorry, who, who who doesn't believe in global warming, for example, or someone who wants to pull out of the Paris Accords, it's hard for me to believe they vote for Joe Biden. It's complicated, though, because, you know, voters vote for lots of reasons. That's, that's true. People vote for lots of reasons. And I think a lot of people, especially some prominent black folks, I'm not sure if you know Tariq Nasheed or not. He's uh, He's been on a podcast. He believes or rather he has said that he believes that Joe Biden is a suspected white supremacist, which uh, he has a you know big following, as you know. And he, ha- he says some very insightful things. He says some really insightful things on the podcast that made me think and say, man, I never thought about it that way. That's interesting. So when we talk about these yeah. policies, Tariq Nasheed, is, Tariq Nasheed is very smart. Yeah, very, very smart. Very, very smart. Very smart, brother. A lot of insightful uh, thoughts and comments on lots, lots of issues. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Now, you you were saying that, and, I, and I'm not trying to stay on the 94 crime bill because there's so much other things to be talking about than that. But you were saying that uh, with Bill Clinton, it's, it's, it's interesting how you can say that you regret something 20 years ago. Well, Joe Biden is in office right now. It was his crime bill. We've not seen any policy push forward in terms of reversing some of the draconian effects of that. That crime bill, we saw with Donald Trump, he pulled out the first step act, which was what he said to be the first step in reversing these these negative effects. What are you doing to push folks on the on and Joe Biden's team on the left to tell him that he needs to to right these wrongs that continue to devastate the black community to this day? You know, um, for me, the strongest thing we can do is take to the streets and and mobilize our votes. Those are two separate things, right? There's protest and there's voting. And for me, both of those things are key. You know, I've met uh, publicly and behind the scenes with many lawmakers in the last few years 
to talk about these issues. I, I'm an abolitionist. I believe in the abolition of police and abolition of prisons. So Joe Biden and I will never be on the same page. But what I can do is make moves and support the types of reforms that aren't antithetical to the project of, of abolition. In other words, I don't believe in reform as the solution, but I, I, I don't I don't oppose reforms that that can make create more livable lives as we fight to produce this new world, this ultimate world, which might we might be decades from. We might be centuries from who knows. But but we have to we have to fight and live in the world that we're in right now. And for me, that means, for example, pushing Joe Biden to say, hey, what about what about cash bail? Pushing Joe Biden to say, hey, what about privately funded prisons, federal prisons? These are things that we pushed him on in the, during the campaign and it's paid off because he's already saying no. No, you know, no to uh, privatized federal prisons. You know, you know, Obama had already said a no to cash bail in uh, in federal prisons. That's something we're pushing on, pushing against the death penalty, pushing for retroactive parole re- and release for people who incarcerated for clem- for uh, for marijuana in the 90s who got these draconian sentences on, on, under under these various laws. These are things that we can do right now. And these are things that I'm doing to push Joe Biden, but not just to push Joe Biden, but to push state level lawmakers, because so much of this stuff happens at the state level and we got to push them, too. Uh, OK, so I'm hearing what you're saying. And there's two things that pop out. One, um, I get getting rid of the private prisons. But are you saying that you are are you against all prisons or just private prisons? Yeah, I'm against prisons. I believe in the abolition of prisons. Yeah. So so what do you so what do you do with the people who. Who, and I know you have you. I'm not sure how many children you have, but I know you have a daughter. So if someone tries to do anything to her, what do you what do you do? You take the law into your own hands or what, what is it you would advocate to prevent the destruction of life? And what criminal penalty? Is there any criminal penalties? Do they go in a corner for a few hours or what, 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 what are we doing? Well, I, th- I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of space between putting someone in a cage and s- sitting someone in a corner. Right. There's, there's lots of ways that we can reimagine the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I know. But I mean, these, these are the questions I get asked all the time. Right. Is, is it a slap on the wrist? You know, do we give people a slap on the wrist or do we, you know, and if because people can only think in extremes because that's how we've been taught to think. Right. We've been only we've been only taught to think about the extremes, which are either we, we lock people in cages for, for years or decades or their whole life or we kill them or we do nothing. And. Um, the first thing I'd say to you, because it's, it's, an, it's an important question you're asking. Um, the first thing I'd say is, well, I, I don't think about this purely in those extremes, right? The bulk of the cases, the bulk of the people sitting in prisons right now aren't there for violent crimes. The bulk of the people in prison aren't there as serial killers and rapists and murderers and et cetera, right? If they were, if there were 2.5 million of those, we might be having a different conversation. So I think about um, the various ways that the prison is used right now to cage people uh, for crimes of need, for crimes of addiction, for crimes of, of, of mental illness, for crimes of homelessness, for crimes of poverty. And the first thing that we always talk about is investing in the world in such a way that those crimes are not necessary, that people aren't stealing to eat, that people aren't stealing to live, that people aren't selling drugs uh, out of necessity, that people aren't using drugs to deal, treat mental illness, um, and that we understand drug addiction as a mental as a mental as a mental as a medical problem rather than as a as a criminal problem. So part of what we have to do is re, is, is strip away our, the logic of criminalization so that we don't always criminalize everything. I'm still getting to your 
crazy serial killer question. I'm just I'm just explaining that that, that that's the which is because I think that's the right question. No, I think it's the right and fair question because people aren't scared of the person who steals their TV in the same way they're scared of the person who might sexually assault them. So I'm I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I don't want you to feel like I'm avoiding your question. I'm just saying. I think that we tend to only think in those narrow terms, right, of, of what happens to that small slice of people in prison for that. Um, I think about, so, so, so it's about that. It's about imagining what the world would be like if we had uh, decarceration. For me, prison abolition is about decarceration. It's about saying, how can we empty the prisons now? And during COVID, we saw lots of signals as to how that's possible. A whole bunch of people didn't get, a, a whole bunch of people didn't do their time we let them out. They were aging. They were dying. They were sick. They weren't a threat to society anymore. And we said, you know, we can let these people out. We did it for health reasons, but the truth is we could have done it a year prior with, for, with the same consequence, right? They, were, they weren't more or less of a danger because of COVID. We let them out because they weren't really a threat to society anymore. So we have way more people caged than we need to. We cage people when they don't have enough money to pay for their bail. So essentially you're in jail because you don't have enough money not to be in jail. That's an evil system. You should, that essentially becomes a debtor's prison. So we, we can decarcerate that way. We can decarcerate by giving people suspended sentences, by, by, by doing work release, by doing community-based uh, um, action, community-based dispute resolution, uh, as opposed to adjudicating things in courts that lead to prison. We can empty out so much of the prison without separating fathers and mothers from their families, without breaking down communities, without stripping away so much of what we need. Excarceration is another part of what I'm talking about. Um, it means that some of the, part of your, because part of your question is, what do we do when people commit crimes? But remember, crimes are social constructs, right? <laughs> okay. I mean, I mean, they are, right? You, you, you would agree that everything I mean, you, 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 there's laws that are passed and people feel whatever is criminal behavior, they, they provide a, a punishment for it. Okay, got it. So, so you agree that crime is a, is a, is a social construct? I, they're created by people. They're created by lawmakers. No, I'm thinking, Right, but my in question terms is, of the punishment crime form. is a social construct. I agree. So you laughed at it, so I don't want your audience to no, think no, no, that. No, 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 no. Because I'm, I'm, I'm listening to where you're going with it. Because, okay, I'm, let, let's continue. I want to hear, right. hear you. I want to hear your the, point. The, the reason I'm saying that is because so much of our attachment to things, once somebody commits a crime, is that many of the things that we as a society agree on as crimes shift from time to time. For example, when, you, you, when I was growing up, um, if you told me somebody was smoking weed, we, oh my God, you know what I mean? Now it's like, oh, he's smoking weed. You know what I mean? People joke about it. People talk about it. You can you can run for president. I mean, even Bill Clinton inhaling, he had to lie about it, how much weed he smoked just to be president, right? And it was like, wink, wink. But like, now if you told me somebody smoked weed, nobody would trip about it, right? So, but that was a crime. And, and, and so learning to read was a crime for black folk at one point, right? Black people and white people getting married was a crime at, at, at one point in history. So, so what I'm saying is just because it's a crime doesn't necessarily mean that we have to punish it. We can reimagine what crime is and say, okay, is everything that we consider a crime actually something that we as a society want to commit to punishing? Now, some things I think at any juncture in history, we might say should be a crime. There are other things a hundred years ago that should have been crimes that weren't. I mean, there it was, it was a time where you could beat slaves legally, right? That should have been a crime. Uh, you know, sexual assault, particularly among married people, did not exist. That should have been a crime. So I'm not, you know, lynching. Well, lynching was actually illegal. They just didn't care. But so my point is, I'm not. My point is that crime is a, is, is, 
people don't commit crimes, they commit acts. And then society decides whether these things are criminal or not. So another piece of this excarceration is making the is making the determination about whether or not all the things that we call crimes need to be. And I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, smoking crack. Right. You grew up in Chicago. You had crackheads, as they called them. Right. They call people crackheads. The, the crackhead was seen as somebody who was not just making a bad choice, but somebody who was a bad person. Juxtapose crackhead with the cokehead. Right. You could have a cokehead lawyer. You could have a cokehead uh, 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 accountant. You could have a cokehead homie that goes to college with you, gets high and then goes to class the next day. And we didn't we, we would say, yo, he's making a bad choice. But the crackhead was a bad person. So it was much easier to imagine taking someone addicted to crack and put them in jail because they, cause that's where bad people go. than it is to take uh, that, that, that rich bo- guy sniffing coke in his office before he goes to a board meeting. Right. And that's around race. That's about class. It's about gender. It's about lots of stuff. And so my point is. We have to strip away some of our some of these ideas we have about crime. You know, do we really do we need to criminalize sex work? Do we need to criminalize two people on a corner shooting dice? Because there's plenty of people in the South Side of Chicago shooting dice. And you don't care about that when you walk past. Them. You don't really think they need to be in jail for, for illegal gambling, but it's still illegal. So we have to ask ourselves, are all these crimes on the books um, necessary? But then there's this thing you that you're talking about, which, I, again, I don't want to ignore. And for as an abolitionist, it's what I call or not what I call it's what abolitionists have called and what I echo uh, restraint of the few. Yes, there are people in society who need to be restrained from society. They do. I grew up with them kind of people. I grew up in a hood. It's people. You glad they somewhere else. I've I, I seen people kill people. I've seen people do extraordinary harm to people. And it's not because they're poor. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. It's people who have means, who have resources. There's sometimes people just do bad shit. And it is not my contention that we put them in a corner. It's not my contention that we give them a slap on the wrist. But the question is, is there a way to have restraint of the few in a way that actually makes those people whole again and makes the people they harmed whole again outside the logic of the prison? And you might say, well, why? Well, because the prison doesn't work. The prison doesn't actually rehabilitate. The prison actually produces more crime. The prison actually makes is criminogenic. It actually makes people worse than when they you go to prison for one thing. You learn how to do more crime while you're in there. The prison is unsafe. The prison, the prison creates more untreated trauma. So for me, I'm I'm not I'm not against developing a system of restraint of the few for the purpose of restorative justice. But the prison isn't the only model. But even if you say, all right, Mark, that's a distinction without a difference. You whatever you call it, you putting people away for some time. Let's say that's true. I don't agree, but let's say that's true. That still would reduce the prison population from 2.3 million to maybe a few hundred thousand, which for me would be the ultimate way to undo the violence of the crime bill, the violence of the prison litigation reform act, the violence of the war on drugs. That's that's, and I know that's a long answer, but that that would be my analysis. Yeah, I, so I, it was so important to, to hear you out in in, in your concept, and your analysis fully, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't interrupt, but. Let me say, and I know that you're a very smart guy, but my opinion of this, and this has not been you just pushing it. There's been a lot of people pushing the same concept on the national level. I'll tell you, I think it's an intellectually bankrupt concept. 
And I'll tell you why. So you talked about coming from the south side of Chicago. I talk about my best-selling book, Taken for Granted. My mom was one of those quote-unquote crackheads that you, you just referenced. I recognize that she isn't a bad person and wasn't a bad person then. However, there are people who are quote-unquote crackheads that do criminal behavior and they abuse their family. They rob people. They steal from people. And they may murder someone just to get a hold of that drug, to get in their pocket. Those people deserve jail time. When you think about the fact that I'm telling you, if you're going to murder somebody, that deserves jail time. If someone shoots you, someone murders you, your family is going to want to get justice. Just like with George Floyd, his family wanted justice. America wanted justice. Let me ask you just a clarifying question. Because because remember, my my premise was if we invest in the world, because I agree, but most people who, who, most people who do, who are doing crime, as crack addicts are doing so as crimes of addiction. You'd agree with that, right? Like you said, they steal, they rob, they do this stuff. I mean, people, if somebody's stealing your VCR in the 90s, it's not because they just like to steal VCRs. They sell them to get crack. Right, yeah, they, they would sell and it. So, but st- still in all, still in all, there's someone being disenfranchised by that action. So that, that's that's what I'm saying. Let me finish this point real agreed. quick. There, so the, the same philosophy that you're, you're pushing is being pushed on the national stage. So I won't even say it's your philosophy. I'll say that it's being pushed on the national stage. There's people like Kim Fox. She's the Cook County prosecutor in Chicago right now who's moving about life with this very same philosophy. She has, since she's been in office over the course of three years, has dropped all charges. And I'm talking about felony counts. Real legitimate felony counts. We're talking up up to murder. All charges for twenty nine point nine percent of defendants. That's about twenty five thousand people. This has not made Chicago more safe. My little brother in a car Memorial Day weekend twenty seventeen in a car with two of his friends. Uh, two of, yeah, two of his friends just sitting on the street talking. That's it. That's all they were doing. Two men walked up, shot the car twenty five times. His best friend died in his arms. Should we reimagine the punishment for the shooters? Because it was two shooters at that point. Should we say like, oh, well, maybe they don't deserve jail time or we have to think about this differently? No, people want justice. My little brother wants justice. His best friend died in his arms and he could have been dead. I would want justice. So there has to be a place for the bad people to go for those who refuse. And there's going to be people who refuse to obey the law. There's not going to ever be a time where we can just say, hey, you can be rehabilitated. Some people simply put cannot be rehabilitated. They have to face some harsh consequence in order to turn their selves around if they were to choose to do so. Would you not agree with that? I would disagree with almost everything you said. I reject some of the premises. Right. So, again, you said that you're asking why why shouldn't those people get justice my premise i'm not sure i never argued that people shouldn't get justice what we're disagreeing is on what justice looks like right um so, so Derek Chauvin, should he, he not go to jail Derek Chauvin shouldn't go to jail in your in your argument is that right yeah that's my argument so you're saying Derek Chauvin should not be in jail for uh what he did to george floyd you're i mean if i i, I don't want to get into a soundbite thing you, you understand that we're speaking about in the ultimate you're, you're, you're talking about right now in this very moment. Or are you talking about in an abolitionist world? You're saying you're arguing, generally speaking, that jails shouldn't exist. That's right. Or no. Yeah. OK. I'm so saying, in, in you, this you, world. You, today, hold, on, hold, on, hold on. Hold on. You also remember me saying that we have to also have to navigate the world we're in, that it could dec- it could take decades or even centuries to build the world that I'm talking about. You remember that part? OK. Right? OK. 
So let's just say it takes decade. Let's let's just say one decade, so ten I'm years. Just saying, that, that, because that because that would be it's a, it becomes a dishonest conversation. Because what, what, but why what, would it be what dishonest? It you don't want to mention it. How's it dishonest? Are you being intellectually dishonest? Then I don't know. I'm trying to understand your the, your point. No, You're no, saying you I'm, don't believe in jails. What I'm saying is it becomes misleading to the audience if if because the way they walk with the headlines saying Mark Lamont Hill says. Derek Chauvin shouldn't be in jail, as opposed to saying Mark Lamont Hill is saying that we should we should construct a world that would that would deal with these issues in a different way. I also I, I also said that people who are a threat to society should be restrained and, and held out of society. I just think the model should look different than the prison as it's currently constructed. I also said that. And so to take all that away and just walk away with Mark Lamont Hill said Derek Chauvin shouldn't go to jail. I think that was a misrepresentation of what I'm saying. OK, so you, you, say you that, clarified your point because you said, oh, yes, that's what I'm saying. So so you just clarified your point. Fine, we 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 can move on from that. Well, well, but, I, 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 but I began with that. I, I, be, I began with that. I began by saying that again, this could take centuries to create. I, I began by that. I also began Decades by saying that restraint of the few doesn't. I also began by saying restraint of the few doesn't mean that people just go home. It doesn't mean that we give people slaps on the wrist, but that we reimagine how we can do it, but that the goal is restoration and rehabilitation rather than simply punishment. Also, I also never suggested that people shouldn't get justice. What I said is that justice may look different if we have other models outside of just the prison, right? I'm, I'm talking about restorative models. I, I'll give you an example. Someone shot the president, right? Ronald Reagan gets shot, right? This is a fact. He wasn't put in, he wasn't sent to prison. It's also a fact. You, you're not disputing any of this, right? No, no, no. Oh, okay. So it was determined that he had mental illness. And so for decades, he got treatment, he got care, he got medicine, he got coping strategies, he learned how to navigate society, and this man is now where? Back in society, reintegrated. But he didn't sit in a cage for 30 years. This is my point. So it, it so it, so yeah, but so yeah, we could we could have a cheap headline of you know, he says you know the person who shoots the president shouldn't go to jail. Well, yeah, but um, but the more nuanced and sophisticated conversation I think is to say, what did that set of services do for him that still kept the public safe, that still held him accountable, but but allowed him to reenter society better than when he left? That's what I'm looking for, and 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 remember, I also began by saying we have to invest in the systems that um that that create the problems that we have so again if somebody is addicted to drugs and they're stealing because they don't have drugs part of why they're stealing to get drugs is because they don't have access to them right drugs are illegal they're, they're, they're poorly regulated they're they're unsafe for that reason and you have to live in the underside of society to consume a lot of them right you can't just go and do heroin like sitting on sitting on the steps right you, so and many people are unhoused and and so what would what would the world look like with safe injection facilities? What would the world look like with, with the with the decriminalization of these drugs? What would the world look like if we invested and created a social safety net so that the, so that the people who are the poorest among us still have resources for a living wage? At the same time that I would say, just to use the example with your with your, your your beloved mother, I don't want her to stay there. I'm not saying that we should give her a living wage so that she can buy drugs. I'm saying give her a living wage at the same time that we're, we're, we're supplying drug counselors and drug treatment and we're treating it like a medical problem rather than rather than a criminal problem. That's all I'm saying. So I'm not saying ignore the fact that the person just stole your TV. I'm saying let's create a context where someone doesn't have to steal TVs 
to deal with a medical problem and a social problem. That's what I'm saying. So I'm not trying to ignore what happens when they steal the TV. I'm saying let's try to prevent the stealing of the TV through these other investments. But that doesn't change the fact that somebody's going to steal the TV, right? Everybody isn't going to follow this, the rules. There's going to be somebody who steals the TV either because they need to or because they just want to. Some people are just fucked up people and they just want to steal TVs. Let's accept that. I'm saying, though, if John Caldwell steals my TV, I don't want you putting it here. I want you to make me whole again. I want I want you to restore me to where I was. Restitution. Right. Potentially, yes. And it could look like buying me another TV, but it could look like a few other things. And I'm saying that that also has to be part of how we think about this. And if we do, if we do those processes, then the, the Derek Chauvin's of the world or the Dylan Roof's of the world, right? These are awful people. They can be dealt with through mechanisms that we can create in society. There's no way you can tell me Dylan Roof is sane. There's no way you're going to tell me a child molester is sane. There's no way you're going to tell me a serial killer, the Boston bomber, is, 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 is sane. I'm saying that they need mental, mental, mental health treatment as much as they need to be kept out of society. We can imagine alternatives to the prison. That, that doesn't mean that you don't get justice. Okay. We're talking to Dr. Mark Lamont Hill. We'll be back in a second. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Let me ask you about this, because, um, you know, we're, we're in a, a place where uh, being woke is it, I remember when woke was a thing that was just kind of more among the black community. But now being woke is seemingly everybody's thing. And whatever the general the purpose of being woke was, has been usurped to something else altogether. 
in my view. So I want to ask you about wokeness and social justice. I recently saw a story about Coca-Cola urging its employees to be, quote, less white as a part of their company's diversity training program. Do you support that kind of thing in the workplace? At what point do we get too woke? I, I still don't know what woke means. I'm, I'm still very confused about what people mean when they say woke. <laughs> and I mean that's, just, that's not me being silly or, or, or coy or, or like, I, I feel like it's a term, like you said, that has been co-opted so much that I, 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 don't, I don't know what it means to people. Um, for me, woke, at least what Erica used to say it, you know, stay woke and all that. For me, it was about so, being socially conscious. Woke was about being aware. It was about uh, it was about being um, aware of who you were, having knowledge of self. Now, woke to me is about playing into some real narrow, thin liberal politics that I don't necessarily share. Um, and so, watching corporations or or media outlets or whatever co-opt that language to look like they're that they're, they're part of the diversity, equity, and inclusion game, which is really about um, posturing and making themselves uh, accessible to more money uh, and resources. For me, I, I have I have very little I have very little trust or I put very little credence in in those in those efforts. Yeah. So would you would you agree that uh, that Coca Cola really advocating for its employees to be less white would be a form of racism? That advocating for their Employees, employees to be less white? Yeah. They, that's what Coca-Cola said. Say, they said they, they I'm, the I'm employees asking for clarity. They, I'm sorry? I'm asking for clarity. You say they want the employees to be less white. Do you mean demographically or to act less white? No, no, no. To oh, act okay. less white. To act less white. I think that that's uh, a very... The language is so ambiguous that I think it, 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 can, it can potentially do harm. I, I, I can understand a context in which that would make sense. And I can understand a context in which that would be problematic. I don't think it's racist, but I think that it can, it, it's wildly insensitive and deeply irresponsible if it's, if it's, to, unless it's given extraordinary context. And even in that context, I would say, is that really the best way to make that happen? So if, if you and I were a part of a corporation, let's say Apple or whatever, and they came, no, 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 let's say we work for CPAC. If you will, the, the, let's say we work for CPAC and we were in a room with our white colleagues and they said, listen, you and Mark need to be less black. Would that be considered racist or would that just be uh, deeply disturbing? The premise of the question, the, the answer is the, the answer to your question is yes, it would be racist. And the reason why there's a difference is because black and white aren't opposite sides of the same coin. Surely it's it, surely if, if when, when, when you're again, you're from Chicago, you know all about the Black Panthers. When people stood up and said black power. Surely you don't think that that's the same thing as somebody standing up and saying white power, right? They words have different meanings given the context and the histories that they come out of. Black and white are opposite sides of the same coin. One has normative power. One has state power behind it. And so when and and so again, I don't know the context in which Coca Cola is saying it, but if if I asked you, if I said Gianna, what do you love about being black? I think that there are certain answers you would give, right? You could talk about all the shit you like about being black, right? If, I, if you walk up to a white person and say, yo, what do you love about being white? Right? That's a very different question. 
not what do you love about being Irish or Russian or Polish or 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 whatever, but what do you love about being white? And the reason why it it, it would be an uncomfortable question to ask someone is because of what whiteness means in our social world and with the social and, and political meanings attached to whiteness. So it's not the same thing. And so when you ask me, well, what if a white person did that? Well, the context is different. You know what I mean? Similarly, if um, you, you're, I don't know if you're part of Blexit or not, but you know, if, 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 but if somebody says there's a Blexit, that's not the same thing as a, a Wexit. If white people say, you know, all the white people need to lead the Republican, the, 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 the Democratic Party, that shit would be profoundly different than saying all the black people need to leave. Why? Because there's a history and a context for why black people need to leave the party. The, the Democrats have served white liberals quite well. And, and, and white people aren't under assault or under attack in the Democratic Party. Right. So so a Wexit would be a very different kind of move. And so we could look at this across across the board and say, well, yeah, that's why we don't have white history month. That's why we don't have WET for a, t- for a TV network, because these things aren't necessary in context. So when I hear them say, so, so part of what whiteness, part of what we've learned and part of what we talk about with regard to whiteness is whiteness is when people, is when we say we're trying to rid ourselves of whiteness, typically what that means is white privilege. Typically what that means is be, being at the center of the cultural experience at all times, being at the center of the of the intellectual experience at all times. And so to and so would I use the language be less white? No, I would not. But I wouldn't assume that that means the same thing as being less black. It, it, they don't mean the same thing. Yeah, but that that that's uh, that's your interpretation of it, as you as you would say. They said be act less yeah, black. They said act less. But but here, here's the distinction too. You talk about how do you feel about being black? Um, I can ask my friend Connor, for example. How how does it feel being an Irish American, or how does it feel being an Italian American? I didn't say that. No, 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 no. You didn't say that. I'm saying. I'm saying. You said about the, you know, how does it feel about being black? That was your example. I'm saying, I didn't. I did not say you that. Didn't say I, I that? did not say that. That's what I said. Okay. No, I said, what do you like about it? I mean, oh, what do you I, like I, about that, being that black? Is very specific. Okay. What do you like? The distinction is important. I'm not, I'm not being pedantic. The distinction is important because li- liking something about being white when white is born out of, uh, out of a certain kind of power and privilege, it's hard to say what you like about being white. What, what it's like to be white is different. What you like about, ask a white person, what do you like about being white and see what kind of responses you get? What do you think a white person would say about, you have white friends i have white friends what do you think a white person said what do you like about being white not about your ethnicity but about being white what do you think they'd say yeah i've never i've never had that discussion before so i wouldn't i would know i barely like i barely hear black folks saying what do you like about being black i don't really hear that and i'm just saying if we're talking about equality if we want things to be the same for everybody if we want it to be uh, um, uh even board if you will then one would say, if I'm going to tell you be less black, which we know, you and I both know that there's been corporations that have done this. There's been supervisors that said, listen, you should be less black. Therefore, you would be more um, appropriate for us. So you would be more accepted by us. If, if we're saying that that's racist and that's wrong, then being saying be less white can also be viewed as racist and wrong. I get what you're saying. I hear all, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, you're looking at it through the context of. Uh, uh, context. <laughs> it's, it's a different context. It's a different. It's a different context. But that your context doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. Just because you have a different context, I can I can look at a glass that has uh, water in it, and I can say that glass is uh, half full or it's half empty. That's that's context. That's the distinction. But either way, it's still a glass with water at a particular level. Right. And I'm 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 saying something different. I'm saying 
because those are objective measures. There's a certain amount of water in the glass and, and it's and it's and, and my perspective may shape how I describe it, but there's still an objective amount of water in the glass. What I'm saying is that the very idea of white and black aren't objective in that way. They're, they're not flat objective categories. They're categories and ideas and identities that emerge out of history and they emerge out of politics and they emerge out of uh, social meaning. And so when we make social meanings about things, they don't necessarily mean the same thing. And so and even an example you just gave, when I tell somebody this is what I said, if you were to ask a bunch of black people, what do you like about being black? You don't think they I think you can go on Twitter and, and find a hashtag. What I like about being black. You can find millions of people tell you all the shit they like about being black. Right. You don't find white people in general talking about things they like about being white that aren't about. And if they do, it's from a, you, you'll, you'll see some very interesting answers. And I'd like you to do this as, and anyone else listening. Do this as an experiment. Ask white people, what do you like about being white? Not about being Irish or, or any other ethnicity, Italian or what have you. What do you like about being white? And the problem is it creates a discomfort because whiteness is often defined or, or the, the, the things you like about being white are often in opposition to what black people don't have or to what other people don't have. It, because whiteness is about a power relationship, just like blackness is about a power relationship. And so that's why I'm saying it's different. And so when you ask, when you, when I, if somebody says to you, be less black, like you said, they're saying you need to hide things that society has decided are wrong and bad in order to achieve, right? Don't talk the way you talk. Don't move the way you move. Don't dress the way you move. Do dress the way you dress. Don't do the things that you do culturally uh, or, or don't, don't identify in the world to, with a people that has been despised. Yeah, you're right. That would be racist. When they tell you don't be white, when they say don't don't act white, and again, I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying it doesn't necessarily have to be racist. Everything's not the same. If I say um, act less white, a lot of times they're saying, at least in experiences that I've had where this has been said, they're saying be more culturally sensitive, listen to other people, decenter yourself. But can you just don't say take that? Your for granted. Can you just say that? It, I, I agree with you. I said there are other ways to do it. I'm not I'm not. I'm, what I'm saying, though, is the sentiment behind be less white is not the same as the sentiment behind be less black. They're not the same thing. I agree with you that there are better ways to deliver it. I agree with you that this is not a helpful or healthy way to build community. We're on the same page that you shouldn't do it. But just because you shouldn't do it doesn't mean it's racist. OK. All right. Um, I, I hear your point. Now, let me ask you about something, because I, we, we're talking about wokeness right now and we're seeing and to your point where you were saying, hey, uh, you shouldn't be like this or like that. And you're using your example and your descriptor for uh, black people be less black. I would I would argue that they're, the same thing is occurring with white people, with a lot of white people saying, hey, I hate my white skin and I hate um, what has happened in this country and what I what I my me being white has, has done to this country. And that that's a whole nother set of issues and probably self-hatred, because obviously these are people ancestors and not them actually committing the acts. But there was a, a guy by the name of Andrew Gutman who had his, I believe it was his daughter in a private school in, in New York City. And he recently took her out and he wrote a letter to to um, 600 parents about what they were teaching. And in the letter and, and some of the things he said in the letter, I disagree with. But I want to read this part uh, here, what he said. I object to the idea that blacks are unable to succeed in this country without the aid from government or from whites. He disregards the view that blacks should be forever, forever regarded as helpless victims and are incapable of success regardless of their skills, talents, or hard work. And he believed that's what they were teaching in the class. And I think to some degree, a lot of people can agree with that statement in terms of 
saying that, hey, you, you because you're black, you can't be as successful. And I grew up with people saying that to me, that I can only go so far in life because of the color of my skin. I'm talking about black folks telling me that exact same thing. And these are things that are passed down, theories that are passed down from generation to generation. I understand that there's systems against us. I understand the history of this country. I get all those things. But for us to form our mentality around we can't succeed because of the color of our skin is not just a dangerous concept. It's one that provides um, that we're incapable of any success whatsoever. So what do you do if you believe that you can't succeed doing things the right way? You you get involved in criminality. You pretty much throw your life away. You don't believe in education because, hey, I'm not going to succeed regardless because of the color of my skin. Are you seeing that in this woke culture now? Are you are you have you are no. you familiar? You're not seeing that at all. No. Have you I'm, never I'm heard seeing, of any of this? No. I, I what I what I've heard in my experience in the 42 years I've been on this planet um is uh more black people acknowledging cuz you're talking about black this you know about internal conversations that yeah, yeah, black very, people very black internal. People. Yeah. It happens when white, white I, people are engaging in it as well. They're saying, hey, we need to bring about crutches because there's no way you can succeed because you're black. That 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 does exist. We see yeah, that with very and, liberal and, whites. And I, and I, yeah, I'm just saying, you asked me about my experience. I'm yes, I have experienced that. I, I, I give you an example. I went to Cook County Jail with Jesse Jackson one time since you mentioned Jesse Jackson. You you would agree that Jesse Jackson is someone who talks about systemic racism, right? And, and, and black people having a tough way to go. Jesse Jackson is not shy about criti- criticizing racism and calling out racism right so we go to the jail and he says to, to to the incarcerated brothers how many of you are here for a nonviolent drug offense hands go up almost everybody right systemic stuff he says uh how many of you finished high school almost no hands go up he said how many of you have kids hands go up two kids hands go up three kids whole bunch of hands go up he stopped asking so how many of you are here are under 25 years old? Whole bunch of hands go up. So you talk about young black men, systemic drug crimes, kids, broken schools, the whole nine. But he's just asking questions. He says to him, how many of you want to get out of this prison or this jail? Excuse me. Says, how many of y'all want to get out of here? They raised their hand. He said, how many of y'all want to leave this place? He said, yeah. How many of y'all want to shut this prison down? Everybody raised their hand. They said, what do we do? You know what he said? He said, don't come back no more. He said, don't come back no more. Jesse Jackson has a critique of society. It's a critique of the drug war. It's a critique of broken schools. But when he met with those young men, what he said to them was, if you want to shut this thing down, don't come back no more. You're from Chicago. I'll give you another example. Elijah Muhammad, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. He said, we have to starve the system. Nobody would ever say the Nation of Islam doesn't have a critique of racism. But what he said was, we have to starve the system by cleaning ourselves up. So when you look at Marcus Garvey, when you look at uh, Du Bois, when you look at Booker T, when you look at Malcolm, when you look at King, the argument in our tradition, the tradition I've been a part of, is not to ignore that we got work to do and that we need to do better and that we need some act right. But it's to balance the need for act right with the realities of a system in which we need to act right. And so when I hear people say the system is messed up, there's a conspiracy against us. 
they're trying to kill us. They're trying to arrest us. They're trying to push us out of school. They're trying to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, 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 the end game has never been to just concede to that. It's to understand, as Razkaz used to say back in the day, the nature of the threat. It's to understand what you're up against so that you can fight and win. So when I meet with young black men, I say, yes, there is a conspiracy against you. They want you gone. They want you erased. They want you silenced. They want you marginalized. But I said, the next question is, are you going to be part of the conspiracy or are you going to fight the conspiracy? And that's how I think about this work. And that's what I've always heard in our tradition. The system is fucked up, but you got to act right. And that's the only way we can succeed. The system is effed up, but you got to act right. Yeah. Wow. Let me ask you this question, because I, I really want to ask you about this. And, you know, it's about racism. I because you mentioned Jesse Jackson, you say you, you know, he talks about racism all the time. Yeah, of course, racism exists. It's, and I personally don't believe it. It will never not exist. I think hate will always be with us, whether it be hate against Hispanics, hate against whites, hate against blacks, whatever the case may be. I think hate is is here to stay. I don't think that that's going to change at any point until Jesus come. Maybe then, you know, that, that'll change. And I'm not sure how you feel about Jesus. So we'll, we'll, we'll move on on that. But you see racism continuously being used in ways like I saw that it was a, a, a transgender woman who says for those who say that we shouldn't have um, biological men playing in women's sports, that's the new form of white supremacy and racism in this country. Uh, you, you have a home. I know you might be in your home right now. You have a, a master bedroom, right? I do. People are saying that master bedrooms, the phrasing of that is racist. People are saying that trees are racist. People are saying a lot of different things. And a lot of a lot of cases, what I'm seeing now, it has nothing to do with black folks and, and legitimate racism. White liberals have usurped what true and real racism is for their own agenda and their own benefit. And we got policymakers like Joe Biden, who no longer speaks to black people in terms of direct policy. He's saying minorities. Um, do you think that the, the this liberals like really far left liberals or even just liberals in general right now have usurped these not even concepts, but what has happened with racism and they created their own agenda to, to kind of fuel whatever they want to target and, and push forward in their own life? No. Um, I, I, I think that if we have a look at the grand sweep of history, there've always been these kinds of tensions and debates. There've always been these skepticisms of white liberals and criticisms of white liberals. Yeah. Malcolm X was very skeptical of white liberals. Yeah, he should have been. Um, and so I don't think this is some new movement as much as I see part of the tension of freedom fighting, part of the challenge of, uh, of, of having moral and political political clarity. What are we fighting for? What is the end game here? What is it supposed to look like? Um, is every fight worth fighting for? Now, you and I might disagree on whether these things are, these terms, these moments, these movements, these controversies, these stories are racist or not. I mean, that's almost not even the point, right? Um, the question is, who gets to determine what the thing is? And I think too often we have surrendered um our power to define and our power to lead our own freedom movement to other people, including white liberals. Um, we've allowed too many people to shape the discourse or to tell us uh, who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to be. And for me, 
the best thing we can do at this juncture in history is to wrest that control back. And and I think the most beautiful thing I saw in the streets of Missouri in 2014 or the streets of Minnesota in the streets of 2020 is the people taking control, the people seizing, seizing power, etc. We're calling for defunding because that's what we want. Damn what Joe Biden wants. Right. We're going to call for Medicare for all to hell what Joe Biden wants. And even and even though this isn't a particularly black issue, it should be uh, the uh, Green New Deal. We're going to call for it because that's what we want. That's what the people want. And we're no longer going to say, or I, I pray, we're no longer going to say, um, not yet. We can't wait. The Democrats won't win on that. We're now saying, what do our people need? What do the people need? What do what what does the world need? And we're making those judgments. Um, and again, we may have disagreements. You and I may have disagreements. But if we love black people and we love freedom and we're willing to fight for it, then we can get somewhere. Well, um, yeah, you're right. We, we do disagree because I don't think black folks are so interested in a Green New Deal and some of these other things that you mentioned. But it's you, know, you, you know, I just said you, you know, I just said the exact same thing. I said, I don't think that's. Oh, OK. Yeah, I yeah, just yeah. said it should. Yeah. 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 But you said it should. But I, I don't I don't think black folks are really for. For that, and I think Poland supports that. But I want to finish this conversation by talking about unity. It's no secret that our country is very divided. We often hear people, including President Biden, talk about the need for national unity. Is there any hope of that happening? And what steps can be taken to uni- unify the American people more uh, than they are now? I don't think you could have unity without justice. Which include prisons? Um. I don't think prison is, is, is the issue right now. When we're talking about unifying the people. I'm saying we're dying in the streets. We don't have access to, to capital. There's a huge wealth gap. Um, our neighborhoods are over polluted. Um, we're, we're being uh, our streets are being militarized. Jobs are leaving. Um, I'm, I'm saying that there's too many. There's too much of a gap between those who have and those who don't for us um, to be unified. There's also a big chunk of the country that's deeply racist, that's deeply homophobic, that's deeply transphobic. And the, the condition of peace, the precondition of peace has to be justice. So if people don't feel whole in whatever that looks like, then no, we, we won't we won't have unity. We can't. All right. So justice in the form of ensuring that police aren't unjustly uh, killing people, justice in the form of uh, black folks uh, not killing each other, justice in the form of uh, jobs coming back to, to, to the communities, which, which which existed in pre-COVID. Things were going fairly well for a lot of people. So you're saying we need justice overall in order to unify the country in a real way. I'm saying that, yes, but, but I'm going to be clear, the bar is very low right now, you know, where we were pre-COVID is not enough. Where we were, yeah, we were on the uptick. We were on, we were doing really well. Things, I mean, the lowest black unemployment rate in the history of this country, or at least since they've been recording the data. But you're missing my point. I'm saying that the bar for for the bar for justice and prosperity can't just be that. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that 
I'm, this isn't this isn't a partisan argument I'm yeah, making. You know, whether we're talking about the Trump days, whether we're talking about the Obama days, I'm saying none of it was enough. We've never been close to justice. Are we closer than we were 50 years ago? Of course. I'm not making the case that there's no progress. What I'm saying is we still have so far to go. And 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 the gaps we're experiencing don't hinge upon who's president. They hinge upon our our capacity to imagine the world differently and better. And um also our, our political will to make it happen. And we're so far from that. There's such a, a, a crisis of leadership, but there's also a crisis of imagination in this in this country, a political imagination, social imagination, cultural imagination. There's so much further we could go if we just dreamed differently and worked differently and organized differently and didn't just say, well, we can't do that because we've never done it before. And that's too often where we where we find ourselves. Yeah, I certainly agree with you that there's a crisis of leadership. We're seeing a border that's uh, continuously in crisis. We're seeing a, a White House that seemingly and they just got in. So I'll give them that they've been in office for what, five months now. So I'll give them the fact that they just got in. But they're seemingly uh, a government that's not completely working for everyone. So that's that's a problem in and of itself. But before I let you go. What's next for you? Do you have any big projects? I know you want to plug your your TV show. You know, you got a book I, uh, out as well. I know. I'm doing, I'm doing a lot. Of, very excited about it. You know, I I'm the host of Black News Tonight, which uh, airs every single day, Monday to Friday, eight o'clock on Black News Channel, uh, which is in 52 million cable homes. So it should be on on whoever's listening's cable provider. If not, it's also on Roku Channel, Amazon, uh, TiVo, all all the things. Um, I also am the host of Upfront with Al Jazeera. Uh, our season just ended, but we'll be right back in the fall uh, with with weekly weekly international news and, and just great hard hitting stories. Um, I have the Coffee and Books podcast where I sit down with great authors to talk through um, their work, their ideas, etc. And I'm the owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. So if you're if you're purchasing books or uh, interested in you know critical commu- critical engaged conversations and beautiful beloved community. Uh, go to UncleBobbies.com, UncleBobbies.com, and you can check out all the stuff, including our apparel, uh, our books, everything. Well, thank you so much for your, your time. It was a great conversation. Thank you for joining me today on Out Loud with Gianna Caldwell. It's my pleasure. God bless you, brother. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. 
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.